HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Many people in our food community have been seriously impacted by Superstorm Sandy, and our hearts go out to them. At HRN, we've been covering these stories since the storm hit. To learn more, visit our website at www.heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit hearstranch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers, available over podcast from Heritage Radio Network and syndicated up here in the Hudson Valley and WGXP. We are so, I am so happy today because today I'm talking to Danielle Nirenberg, who also spends almost all her time talking to farmers and not just around America, but around the world. She works for World Watch and she's been watching She's been watching a lot of things. Hi, Danielle. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So great to have you here. So um, perhaps you could do a better job than I did of introducing yourself and the work you've been doing over the past, it seems like it's two years now with Nourishing the Planet. Yeah, definitely. Um, I Again, I'm Danielle Nuremberg. I'm the director of the World Watch Institute's Nourishing the Planet Project, and the mission of our project is to evaluate environmentally sustainable ways of alleviating hunger and poverty. We actually started in 2009, and so for um, the first two years of the project, I was uh, on the ground, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, visiting around 350 projects in, in about 30 countries, talking to farmers and farmers' groups and scientists and researchers and NGOs and aid agencies and funding and donor community members and, and a whole range of other stakeholders really getting their thoughts about what's working on the ground to uh, improve nutrition, to raise incomes, and also protect the environment. So the focus that you have is, is on community-based projects and on projects 
I mean, what's the metric? How do you find what you're looking for? Uh, it's I would assume that I'm not necessarily is it super easy to Google around. Right. I, I, I don't have, um, you know, the criteria we use was really very simple. Those, those three things I mentioned, you know, um, the projects that we looked at had to, um, you know, help farmers make a better income. They had to improve uh, nutrition, which often meant um, making sure that there was uh, a lot of crop diversity, that we weren't uh, looking at monoculture systems. And, and really the, the projects, because we're an environmental organization and that's one of the, the things we're most interested in, the projects had to do things like preserve uh, both agricultural and, and biodiversity. They had to um, improve water and soil quality. They had to, um, you know, help uh, mitigate greenhouse gas emissions, and they also had to do things like improve uh, uh, social criteria, you know, improve gender equity, um, uh, reduce labor, um, you know, make sure that more girls were going to school, that, that sort of thing. So we were really, you know, that really gave me the opportunity to visit a wide range of projects that really not only spanned, you know, the continent of Africa, but really spanned a lot of different um, you know, a, a lot of different uh, organizations and um, everything from farmers groups to bigger research institutions. Um, so it was really, um, I mean, I have to say it was an incredible opportunity. I feel very blessed to be able to do the work that I do talking to farmers every day. Um, and, and so I, I think what we were able to do is highlight things that deserve more attention that aren't getting the funding and research investments that they need now. And so certainly there is a lot of strain on, on the finances of small nonprofits in this current economic climate. But when you're traveling around, you're also you're looking at the like on-farm viability issues. And I wonder if there are any parallels to be made between what we experience in the young farmer community in terms of um, a devaluation in the prices in the marketplace as we're competing with the global supermarket and the devaluation of our own labor in the field since we're competing with um, the exploitative price point uh, that's paid to agricultural far or farm workers in this country. And I often am being approached now trying to kind of blur or create an inference of correlation between what young farmers are experiencing here in America with what is kind of relevant to sub-Saharan farmers, and I'm always drawing a blank, but maybe you, coming from where you're standing, see something there. No, I mean, I think what you just described is definitely on point, and, and it's something that we all sort of forget. We, we tend to think of Africa as this, you know, th those are those people over there, that's the other, and we, we don't really see sort of the similarities in the challenges we face, and and what you just described about the young farmer movement here in the United States, uh, you know, the, the same sort of struggles they face in terms of, of access to land and access to credit and access to markets are the same things that, you know, young farmers and older farmers in, in Sub-Saharan Africa as well as Asia are facing. So I think the more that we can sort of bridge the gap between, you know, oh, the, that's happening to those farmers over there, it's really happening to all of us. It's happening to agriculture in general because, it's been taken over, uh, you know, by uh, a lot of big multinational corporations who don't, you know, invest in, in smallholders. They don't invest in young farmers. And I, 
I think that's one of the, you know, there were a couple of things that really floated to the top for us during our research um, and, and making agriculture more um, sustainable for young so farmers. So let's, let's give a little bit more background of how you came into this work and, and your motivation for, for becoming kind of an ag journalist and ag, I guess you're now, you could be considered a wonk of small-scale agriculture. <laughs> globally, uh, and there's a lot of people in this listener base who have maybe one foot in farming but who have another aspiration uh, that's more in the advocacy or education or research department. So just from a career perspective, I think some of us would love to know how you, how you got to this point and, and, and why you decided that this was the tactic for you. Um, sure. I, I grew up in a really small town in Missouri called Defiance. Um, it's about 300 people. And my, my parents had moved there from Chicago, from the city, because they wanted to raise their kids out in the country. And I grew up not, you know, being too cool to hang out with the farm kids. I thought, oh, gosh, that seems like a really hard life. I, I never want to be a farmer. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And then, um, you know, I went to college, uh, majored in environmental policy, and then I... I went away to Peace Corps in the Dominican Republic and ended up working with farmers every day and really saw the connections between, you know, environmental sustainability and food sustainability and completely changed my mind about, about food and farming. And um, my parents, uh, you know, my mom still laughs about it today because she was like, oh, you're always down on the farm kids. And now it's, it's really something that, you know, obviously means a lot to me. And, um, you know, I took what I learned in Peace Corps and, and did a graduate program at Tufts and, um, you know, what I do, I, you know, I'm good at growing things, but not that good. And, and so what I, I can do is write and um, using my skills to communicate and, and talk to people like you about what I've seen on the ground or, or the other folks that I've talked to is really, you know, that's, that I can communicate these issues um, to, to a wide audience through Nourishing the Planet. And that's, that's what I do. And it's, it's been... Um, it's not been a, a hard road. It, it was sort of like things just clicked for me, and I, and I knew what I wanted to do. Um, so, so you, this raising awareness business. I'm also in this raising awareness business um, with at least part of my uh, part of my time, and I, I'm often I often find myself talking uh, to people who are sitting in chairs in, panel co- in like a panel context and, you know, and especially panels in cities. And I, what I often find myself wanting to say is, well, if you're interested in changing the food system, uh, consider moving to the countryside and starting a business because what we need is more, we need more brains and we need more bodies and we need more businesses uh, in agriculture. And, and frankly, that takes people, not just awareness. What are some of the that's what are some of the the kind of overarching outcome goal or goals that you're wanting to apply to the awareness that you raise? What are you? How do you focus people's attention uh, in ways that are concrete? How can we be helpful? Um, I mean, what we've tried to do with nourishing the planet is um, do something a little bit different than. World Watch's typical audience. World Watch has always had this very broad, you know, general audience of consumers and students and, and NGOs. And what we tried to do, at least a little bit, uh, with Nourishing the Planet is do two things. Really reach out to, to farmers and farmers groups. We have a 
uh, a website that gets about 1,200 hits per day. We have a, a newsletter that reaches about 50,000 people every week, and most of them are small-scale farmers in the developing world. And then the other audience that we really try to reach, and, and with that farmer audience, we're, we're highlighting innovations that we've seen working on the ground that we think have a lot of potential to be replicated and scaled up. So it's information sharing, showing farmers that, you know, the success stories rather than all the problems in, in agriculture. Um, and then the other group we've really tried to focus on is uh, increasing awareness among the funder and donor communities, showing them things that they might not hear about, uh, you know, typically in boardrooms or at conferences, showing them the things that, you know, definitely have a ton of potential but aren't getting the investments that they need. And so, you know, over the last couple of years, I've, I've done presentations at the Gates Foundation, at um, the McKnight Foundation, at the Margaret A. Cargill Foundation, at other big foundations, really just trying to highlight, you know, not not there to, to raise money, but just to let them know of the things that we've seen on the ground so that they have an idea of, of, of what's out there because their program officers aren't always seeing those things. So, I mean, it's not just general awareness building that we're trying to do. It, we're, we're also trying to be at least somewhat targeted in, in, in who we're reaching out to. I don't want to cut her off. But it's hard because I can't hear her because her, her she got cut off to me, Joe, so maybe investigate because it's the second time that it's happened. But I'm going to just go into the next question and hope that she comes back. Uh, so the next question, so that's, so you're spending time educating the funder community about the needs of small-scale farmers and um, sustainable agriculture projects um, all over the world. and And... The things that you're probably telling them about are, in all likelihood, related to some of the focal areas that we have, which is really around access to credit, access to land, um, and linking uh, linking farmers with uh, the training programs, business planning programs, um, community support, etc. And which I suppose brings brings us to like the the this kind of philosophical question, which is how how much do we rely on um, the kind of philanthropic and nonprofit sector for what for what jobs, and then in what places do we feel like the only the only way forward is uh, policy change because we've you know we've been working on uh, policy initiatives with the National Young Farmers Coalition, and you know we went to quite a lot of trouble to learn how um, the Farm Bill works and how to write legislative language. And we've um, worked with the National Sustainable Ag Coalition to put together the beginning Farmer and Rancher Opportunity Act and, you know, built a big mailing list and visited, we did 13 in-district meetings, I think, in 2011. And, you know, hustled our bustle, wrote an article, got an article in the New York Times, wrote a policy, you know, platform. We did a lot of this uh, policy work. Uh, only to find ourselves pretty frustrated by the the roadblocks and the well, basically just the slashing of budgets and and particularly slashing of of our small little programs to support beginning farmers. How how much can we rely though on the, the kind of philanthropic and nonprofit sector when, in all likelihood, those are also pinched 
And where, what are the kind of farmer-to-farmer or solidarity-based or kind of um, peer-to-peer-based systems that you see that could be models for us young farmers in the United States? That's a really good question. I don't think it has to be either or. You know, either it's the philanthropic community or it's the aid agencies or it's the farmers themselves. I think we really need a combination of all those things and others that we haven't mentioned to really make sure that that farmers get the resources that they need to do their jobs well and that we have to remember that that farmers aren't just farmers. They're businesswomen and businessmen and they're they're, uh, environmental stewards and, you know, they're... um, food processors, they're not just growers of things. So remembering all those things and then figuring out ways to provide those skills. And and as you mentioned, some of the most innovative stuff out there are these farmer-to-farmer programs and and um, where farmers are, are learning from each other, where there's, you know, one or two farmers in the community who are providing an excellent, you know, excellent examples of, of conserving uh, water quality or, or preventing erosion on their farm or, you know, building treadle pumps. And other farmers learn from that and, and you know, use those skills on their own farms. And, and you know, the, the, the seeing is believing in a lot of these cases. And, and when farmers see that it's working on their neighbor's farm, they can really get an idea of how to move forward. And I think one of the challenges, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa and in you know, in the developing world in general, is that farmers literally don't know what's going on in their own backyards. You know, a community two miles down the road might be doing some innovative stuff, and, and farmers in another community don't know about it. So then the more that farmers are creating unions and cooperatives and farmers groups, the better able they'll be able to share that, you know, those technologies, those business practices, those um, you know, environmental sustainability practices, the better they'll be able to do their jobs. And I think that's, you know, what we're really talking about here is, you know, farming as a business and making sure that it's profitable for folks so that, you know, young farmers want to become farmers, that that farming becomes something that they want to do rather than something that they're forced to do. And, like, you know, I'm so excited about the resurgence uh, of young farmers here, you know, in the United States. Um, but, again, you know, the, the same challenges that young farmers face in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, our farmers are facing here, and, and creating better models of, of learning skills and, and getting resources is crucial to, to make sure that we're, you know, that, that we all have, you know, real, true uh, food security. Well, food security is key, and 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 another another really important thing that we're looking at more and more here, and and I just been listening um, on the radio to to weather reports is resilience in the face of climate shifts, and you know we had major losses here in the apple. Um, the late frost in Michigan, they had a 70% loss in their cherries last year. Hurricane Irene uh, was really devastating to many farmers in this region, right around where I'm farming. And the you know terrible wet, long, cold spring set everyone back. Um, what are some of the ways that you've seen farmers groups or individual farmers um, preparing or or adapting to 
more unpredictable weather. You know, uh, again, this is something where the, the challenges farmers face in sub-Saharan Africa are often similar to what farmers are facing here. And, you know, I think it, it really became clear to me you can read as much as you want about how agroecological practices and sustainable agriculture or organic agriculture are really, you know, uh, uh, key to um, uh, creating resilience to climate change and, and things like price shocks and and a whole range of other things, but until you really see it on the ground where farmers are, are incorporating agroforestry methods on their farm, for example, or using green manure or, um, you know, stewarding nearby forests and grasslands as a way to make sure that, you know, carbon is sequestered, those things are, are really working. And it, it's become clear that all of the major reports that have come out, you know, over the, over the last five or ten years that really point to agroecological methods being the best way, when you see it on the ground, that it becomes so obvious. So, I mean, it's this whole range of, of uh, agroecological practices that are really going to be the key as, we, as the impacts of climate change become more and more severe, whether it's, you know, hurricanes or droughts or, or anything else that, you know, erupt and, and erratic changes in weather. Are, you know, the, the best way to deal with them is to make sure that your, your agriculture is, is resilient. And, and we're seeing that all over the world now. So you're seeing that all over the world and you're reporting to these groups, to the UN and others. Um, is there acknowledgement at the kind of meta-international level that these agroecological strategies and so those improve soil and water um, are more resilient that that should be the focus of programs? Do you see a shift in the willingness of these big bodies to invest and support and, and you know, truly understand on a systems basis that the sustainable ag is a, a better program to be on? You know, there, there's been a shift in, in sort of the things that people say at conferences and meetings, but there's not been a shift in the things they invest in. And that's, you know, when the, the money hits the pavement or, or whatever the saying is. And the, the investment is still very sort of old school green revolution. Uh, and, and, you know, that we need this green revolution for Africa, so we're going to invest in, you know, these things instead of the more sustainable agriculture approaches. So, I mean, I'd like to say that, you know, nourishing the planet has helped shift some of the, the investment, but it hasn't yet. And, and all those reports that I talked about, whether it's the International Ag Assessment, you know, the ISAD report, or any of those other major reports that really show that we can have business as usual, that we need a shift in how food is produced, no one's listening yet. And so I think we all have to keep beating the drum and, you know, uh, a lot of these reports are saying the same thing. So maybe we need 10 more reports and, you know, the, the major investors and, and uh, big international ag institutes and research centers will start listening. But we need to keep beating that drum. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. 
To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.